there's also not a support from my own family or community when it comes to being able to pursue this. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Ross Safari. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the podcast that my mom insists on calling Rossi Fari, the Rossafari podcast. And whether you pronounce it Rossafari or Rossi Fari, make sure you're following the adventure on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or at Rossi Fari, and check out patreon.com slash Rossafari to support the pod. Y'all, today's episode is an exciting one for me, and okay, so I say that most weeks, but that's because I really love what I do and the people and animals I get to interact with on this podcast. But this episode is exciting for a different reason. You see, a few weeks ago, I got a message introducing me to the Association of Minority Zoo and Aquarium Professionals and asking me if I'd be interested in sharing the message of this group on my podcast. Welp, that was a no-brainer for me. I have worked hard to bring as much diversity to my podcast as possible, but I have also found that the zoo field is... Well, it's just really, really white, y'all. Turns out the AMZAP is looking to change that by creating a sense of community amongst minorities working in the zoo field and to promote career opportunities within zoos as a viable option for minorities. I was excited about this opportunity, not just because I wanted to share this message with all of you, but also because I figured this would be a great learning opportunity for me personally. Turns out, I was right. I was fortunate enough to have not one, but two amazing guests on this episode. Carly Hornberger is a primate keeper at Smithsonian's National Zoo in Washington, D.C., Jen Donato is the registrar at Smithsonian's Conservation Biology Institute in Fort Royal, Virginia, and both are steering committee members of the AMZAP. The info they share about the organization is incredible, but their personal stories are what really speak to me in this episode. On a side note, Jen spells her first name with two N's at the end, and I've always dug Jens that spell it J-E-N-N. I frequently refer to them as Jen-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-N-
I was really upset and pretty concerned about the the ability to even make this episode happen, to be honest with you. So I told Joe about it, sent him the files, including one that I couldn't even figure out what it was, and a day later was given some incredible sounding audio. Joe is a wizard. If you have any audio needs, check out www.joepalermo.style. And now, without further ado, I bring you my interview with Jen Donato and Carly Hornberger of the Association of Minority Zoo and Aquarium Professionals. All right, so I am really excited about uh, today's interview. This is going to be a good time. Uh, something a little different for y'all. So let's start off with the traditional way, though. Um, I'm going to ask uh, both of my guests to to tell me who you are, where you work, and and what you do there. Uh, let's start with Carly. Hi, uh, my name is Carly Hornberger. I work at the Smithsonian National Zoo. I am a primate keeper. I've been there now for, I think it was the beginning of my third year. Um, but I was an intern and a volunteer at the Smithsonian National Zoo before, and that was another year. So it's been a total of four years. Very cool. And Carly, I have to tell you, I miss y'all. <laughs> I know. We're opening soon. Get excited. I know. I'm so excited. <laughs> um, the National Zoo has been closed this entire time during COVID, and y'all have a, a baby panda bear cub, and um, it's it's killing me more than a little bit to have not been able to get there. My folks live right outside of D.C., so I go to the National Zoo regularly. I am a member, and I cannot wait to get back to that institution. Trust me, we're excited, too. <laughs> we're ready. <laughs> I bet. I bet. And then, Jen, who are you? Hello. Uh, my name is Jen Donato. I am currently the registrar at the Smithsonian National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute. Um, so we have those two campuses. We have the D.C. one where we have the open exhibits for the public. And then we have our research institute out at Front Royal, Virginia. Uh, I've been at my position for about a little over two years now, and it is actually my first stint at a zoo. Uh, prior to that, I'm a museum person, so I was coming from uh, the American Museum of Natural History in New York. I was a traveling exhibitions registrar there prior, so dealing with living things or things that actually move and give birth and die is basically the first time <laughs> interfacing with that far different from the fossils and artifacts and uh, rocks that I have been managing as part of our institution's collections. So it's been exciting so far. That's really cool. Yeah, I, I bet it's it's different to have uh, exhibits that can escape now. <laughs> exactly. Or that can eat you. <laughs> also true. And I have to say the the Fort Royal campus is incredible. I've only been there once. Y'all open for one day of the year to the public. And I, I have been there on that day. But it is my dream to come back there with the with the podcast and and actually share some of what y'all do with the with my public. So uh, hopefully someday we can work on that because I've been sneakily waiting for a contact and now I've met you. So hi. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> but that is not what we are here to talk about today. So um, why don't you guys tell me why we're here? Jen? <laughs> <laughs> mm, I don't actually know. I was just asked to be here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So why don't I tell everybody <laughs> why we are here? See, like I said, sometimes this just turns into a comedy podcast. 
you know, even unintentionally. Um, that's hilarious. All right. So you guys are both members of the AMZAP, which is the Association of Minority Zoo and Aquarium Professionals. And that is the organization that we are here to talk about today. So surprise if you didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> and um, right off the bat, I'm going to tell you guys that uh, I am the possibly least minority person ever. I am white. I am straight. I am cis. I was raised in a conservative area and didn't even know that certain words shouldn't be said for most of my life. So um, especially the last few years have been a real steep learning curve for me, uh, which I have appreciated. And I love that. And I think it's um, it's a pretty exciting time in our country uh, for for growth for a lot of people, and I'm excited to to be growing that way. Um, but I'm also not used to the experiences uh, that y'all have had and and that minority people in general have that le- lead to groups like this. So I'm super excited to hear some some tales from you guys about why this organization needs to exist, what your goals are, and, and all that kind of stuff. So let's start off by, um, can somebody just give me an overview of the history of, of your group? Uh, sure. Oh, go ahead. Jen. Carly, do you want to start with your experience? I was going to say, I came in kind of late to the to the game. Uh, I was invited by Craig, who is the, the founder, if you will. Um, and then just for like an intro meeting. Uh, and then later on, he asked me to come on as a steering committee member because I'm Native American, um, Oneida tribe, which is in Wisconsin. Um, and because finding a Native American individual in the zoo field is quite rare, apparently, I've been finding this out. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of, and then I was just thrown into it. He's like, you want to be in it? Cool. Here you go. Here's all this stuff. Talk to people. <laughs> what do you want to do? Who are you interested in? And it's been a, a whirlwind, really. It's been great. I've met so many amazing people. Um, he's brought me into helping recruiting new members. Um, so I've been talking to a couple of people over email and internet and stuff like that. So it's been, it's been fun. Uh, it's been a lot in the few, we've only been here for a couple of months, but it's, it's been a lot. All right. I believe that. And, uh, Jen, how did you get involved? So one sunny day, I think Craig, who Craig Sappho is our big cats curator that Carly had just mentioned. He, uh, him and I, we share offices. We're about two doors down from each other. And let me just say the, the building that we work at is it the big cats exhibit. So our office windows face the lion and tiger enclosure. At any given moment, I look around and I see tiger walking. It's, it's amazing. It's probably. That's so cool. <laughs> when I interviewed at the zoo, that was the first place that, uh, they showed me and I was sold. <laughs> I was like, Oh, this is, this is the office. Okay. <laughs> I'm taking the job. Um, but, uh, so that day, uh, Craig just walked over to my office and, and just asked me, I mean, uh, Jen, may I be frank? Um, I've been, uh, pondering about, uh, starting uh, an organization or at least just uh, a network how you phrased it was more of a network of individuals who work at the zoo 
who happen to be minorities. I think he started with the idea that there has not been a lot of black presence at zoos. Um, and so, uh, it is his goal to be able to, first of all, be able to network with other minorities in the zoo field and that being inclusive of Asians, uh, Pacific Islanders, Native Americans, Latinos, uh, in order for us to be able to have a, um, uh, a sort of a fraternity, a network of people that we can lean on for support, uh, but also to be able to reach out to, uh, young people to say that it is, uh, to, to young minorities to be able to tell them that, uh, it is a valid, um, trajectory for a career. And, um, whereas traditionally it has been very white, dominated, that there are these folks who have established a career in all aspects of um, the zoo work, whether as a zookeeper or as a researcher, or in my case, as a registrar, there is a place for you should you want it. And there are people you can reach out to if you have any questions about about um, their line of work. So that being said, it really just started as a networking opportunity for all of us. And then it has since grown because we have garnered uh, such massive support, not just from our own institution, which we are very grateful for, from our own colleagues um, and the Smithsonian Institution at large, but also from other zoological institutions that um, have also been figuring out ways on how to attract a more diverse uh, workforce. And so it has been a something that now that there is a presence, there is an actual organization out there. It provides a, a channel for which other institutions can reach out, uh, whether in um, uh, in the form of mentorships, internships, job boards, um, but also have a place where they can... Um, uh, network with um, with other professionals in the industry. So I think it has been very, very exciting, not just for us, the, the founding members, but also for those who have been uh, joining us and also finding the group out there. So thank you for <laughs> allowing us actually this chance to even further um, advertise the, uh, the organization. Of course. I was so excited. Uh, I got an email asking me, you know, if, if y'all could be on the podcast. And when I looked into what you're doing, I was so excited. Um, I am very passionate about uh, trying to give you guys a voice on my podcast. Uh, it means a lot to me. It really does. I'm, I'm very excited about this. Uh, and so let's one thing that I really want to touch on, one thing that's really important to me and I talk a lot about on this podcast is mentorship. And I noticed that uh, you guys have your three kind of tenets on your homepage are network, outreach, and mentor. So can you talk to me about mentorship and how important that is uh, for AMZAP? Uh, sure. <laughs> um, I mean, just speaking from personal experience, the mentorship plays a, a great deal into getting into this field. You need the experience, no matter really which area you're trying to get into. But speaking as a zookeeper, you know, you have to do the volunteering, you have to do the internships, you have to do the unpaid, not really fun work <laughs> to be able to do the fun part that you really want to do. And like I came in 
just as a keeper aid. And luckily, um, the person who's in charge of keeper aids and interns at in our unit, um, she kind of swept me under her wing. And like without her, I never would have gotten into this job. Like I know it for a fact. Like there is no way I would still be bumming around somewhere else. Um, so, and I just want to be able to pay it forward, honestly. And some of these kids who are minorities, they don't have that opportunity. Um, I mean, they can't not work for money. They can't, you know, take 40 hours out of their week to go do something for free. So it's trying to find that balance of like how we can help who needs the help and how we can make this beautiful like connection to bring them into this field. It's, it's a hard one to get into. It really is. It's really rough and tumble. I'm, we're, right now, we're really working on focusing on how to do this mentorship properly and you know what all that entails. I know we have all these great support organizations that have joined us and people who are super excited to be mentors. And you know we're working on that outreach. Um, to my knowledge, I don't know of any actual mentorships that have started to take place, but it's something we are definitely working towards. We're still new, so we're working on it. Um, But it's definitely something that's near and dear to my heart to really help these kids or anybody really trying to get into this field. And that is an important point to make. Uh, The organization was founded in 2018, right? Yeah. But we really just have been uh, pushing steam on a lot of our efforts, Uh, whether it's our identity um, so that's creation of our website, um, the logos, and then being able to garner membership. And as Carly had said, uh, developing the mentorship program and how we're going to be able to, um, is it going to be, uh, uh, an individual going to directly contact a, um, a person through the website to ask about any mentorship programs that they have in that specific institution, or is it going to be filtered through the organization? So we have different ways that we can go about that. But the goal is to be able to have these uh, key individuals who will be able to provide a, um, uh, a, not just be able to develop, uh, an individual um, professionally, but also be able to provide that necessary support to navigate a very competitive environment and also be able to uh, allow that um, network to grow, whether it's for a future internship or a job prospect, uh, to really be that guide and uh, support system. And it's not going to be just individual to individual. It could be a group of individuals who will mentor um, a, a key group of, of young people. So we're still trying to figure out ways on how we can further develop that and what will work uh, also for the organization and for our audience at large. That's really awesome. Very cool. Um, now, uh, you know, Carly, you mentioned a little bit um, about how sometimes if, if you come from a minority background, um, you might not have the same advantages as as like white people do. But um, I 
I want to go deep on this because we are in an incredibly divisive time right now. And there are a hell of a lot of people in this country who are going to look at you guys and be like, no, this is racism because you're trying to help people that don't have my skin color. We all know it. We all hear it. We all think it's stupid. At least the three of us do. But um, can can we talk about that a little bit and about what what white privilege uh, looks like in this field and and why it's important? important that minority people have the chance to to overcome that? It's a loaded question. <laughs> I know, I'm um, good at those. <laughs> wow. Um, so I know I'm lucky. Um, I can play as white, and so I do. Um, I mean, I, I'm not fully Native American. I am like half and half. Uh, so unless it's... I spend a lot of time out in the sun. You can't really tell. Um, and so I play into that. Like, I never really brought it up. Um, but again, because, you know, we didn't live on the reservation. We don't, I mean, we we are there, but, like, we haven't gone up there forever. Mm-hmm. Um, but we don't live on the reservation. My family did pretty well, even with, you know, I have four siblings. We had a big family. I got married relatively young. My husband is a great provider. And, like, I had the ability to take an internship and to work my way into this field. I didn't have to, you know, fight to pay rent or, you know, pay my bills, take care of my child, do all these things. And sometimes what we're finding is some minorities just are stuck in not great positions where they have children, they have to pay for daycare, they have to pay rent, they can't do all these things that, you know, just, some kid who just stumbled out of college, well, one, they were able to pay to, for college. Mom and dad helped for that. Or, um, you know, they got a loan or something along those lines. So, you know, they were they had somebody there to hold their hand. And a lot of times these kids don't. And that's what's really important. And, you know, a lot of people are like, well, they could get help if they want it. But then they're like, well, it's socialism. So we can't give them, <laughs> you know, all the support. <laughs> And you just find yourself in this horrible catch-22, and you're just like, well, what do you want us to do? And, like, they are put into these bad neighborhoods because of their skin color. Or, you know, they're, they're pushed in that area. I forget the term for it. Um, but, you know, they're not given the great opportunities. They're not given scholarships for certain reasons. Like, it's, it can go on and on and on that they just don't get the help. And these people are so privileged they just don't see or they turn a blind eye to it and it makes it really difficult to try to explain these situations sometimes because they're just being blatantly ignorant and it's frustrating and painful to watch go down especially nowadays and it's just been a heart wreck (laughs) like it's been awful (laughs) yeah i i I I can't even imagine. I like to. I almost said I totally get it, but the truth is, I I don't. I try to be, uh, a, a, you know, empathetic, and I I I have a lot of friends who are are minorities, and I I um I try to commiserate, but I know that I've never experienced it, and and there's just a it's just different. Um, one thing that I do like to to kind of point out to people is that Rosa Parks died in two thousand and five. Um, And I love that fact because I feel like to a lot of people, you know, they say, oh, racism was was history and slavery and and segregation that that's so old. That's what Rosa Parks 
was alive in 2005. And, and you know, that's just such a, a nice, easy way to point out to people that like, no, no, you, this wasn't that long ago, our, you know, and history tends to move slowly. Um, so we're, we're still dealing with a lot of that, you know. Um, Jen, do you have any additional thoughts that you'd like to add to, to this question? Um, well, I definitely will agree with you that uh, racism is definitely very, very much around and alive. And while in, in science, when we look at really uh, the, uh, the genetic makeup that makes up skin color, it literally is skin deep, but you don't take away from the fact that it's still a lived experience for many, many people. And uh, I think a big part of that is also tied with socioeconomics. And as Carly was saying, the the level of opportunity that many minorities, particularly those who live in inner city, what they don't have is that uh, the recognition that it's okay for them to try and um, and see what opportunities they there are in these uh, fields that are not have been traditionally occupied by minorities. My sister has always told me uh, when I started to pursue archaeology uh, in my uh, graduate degree, she said, why are you trying to do a rich person's degree? What, what, what kind of job do you think do you expect to get out of that? And I think that is predominantly the thinking among um poor minorities is that why am I going to pursue a career in a place where I'm not going to make a lot of money and I would have to compete with so many people that uh, would look at me very differently. And there's also not a support from my own family or community when it comes to being able to pursue this, this career. It seems that it's just a dream. Um, and what can I make out of that in the long run? So it's this level of, um, anxiety about it, but it's also not something that has been introduced to them as a viable option. That being said, like Carly, I mean, I'm very brown, so there's no mistake in that uh, when I walk in the room, I am different. But my last name is Donato, which is actually an Italian last name. And, uh, and so when I hand my resume, it's always, always, I walk in a room, somebody looks at me, Jennifer Donato, like, yes, that's me. Look at my resume. Look at me again. And it's just like, oh. <laughs> oh, man. And that is something that I feel like off the bat, you're already feeling um, that I showed up to a party that I wasn't invited to. So you're coming at it from this bottom place of already feeling insecure. That's at an interview for which you have to really be uh, at your best and um uh and exhibit the, exude that confidence that uh, that they need you for this job but then you come at it from that and you're like oh they were expecting somebody else <laughs> but at the same time there also this level of um and and I and and I hate to say this as an advantage because of course at the very core of it is it's 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 racist it's this um, that I, that I can actually deliver on what is on paper, at least from the way the interviews would go. They seem to be a lot more impressed uh, 
Um, and again, because they're looking at my skin color, like, oh, she could, you know, she could actually do these things or, you know, she could actually speak about these things. Um, there, there is intelligence there. And again, of course, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't feel good. It sometimes could feel, uh, quite condescending. Um, but then at the workplace itself, of course, there's still, um, uh, a, a, an underbelly of institutional racism that, that happens. And it's, that's, it's just something that as minorities, we carry with us. Um, and that, uh, there's this level of just understanding about it. And, and it needs to be talked about. At least, uh, I feel like, uh, awareness is, a uh, part of that solution, just being able to be aware of these uh, challenges that minorities have coming into specifically an industry that not a lot of minorities go into. I think that's um, that could go a long way for being able to provide that um, that support, uh, that feeling of acceptance and recognition that everybody deserves. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Okay, so I'm going to ask a question, and it might seem a little weird, but let me tell you where I'm coming from first, okay? So as I mentioned, I do not have um, anything minority going on over here, but my entire life I have struggled with my weight, sometimes very badly. Um, I have a horrible metabolism, and uh, so for most of my life, I was the fat kid. I used to weigh over 300 pounds. I've worked on it. We're getting there. And from that experience and also making a living in the entertainment industry, which is the worst industry to be overweight in, um, I find that I am constantly aware and thinking about my weight when I am in those places with those people. Not like when I'm sitting at home alone, but but when I am around other people, I am constantly thinking about what my belly looks like and what I'm wearing and how are you eating pizza when you're so skinny and all those things. And I'm wondering if you guys have any experiences like that when you're around, uh, you know, working in a predominantly white field. How aware of your own race are you all the time? And do you think that affects you at all? Uh, <laughs> I am. Um, I can specifically remember uh, we had a an exam, a veterinary exam on uh, two of our gorillas. And it was a very stressful day to begin with. It always is, no matter what. But um, I remember one of uh, the curators afterwards saying that we all need to sit down and have a powwow about what happened and it I was like wait what I was like no 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 and but everybody nobody else seemed phased by it everybody was like yeah let's have a powwow about what happened like do you know what a powwow is it's not an appropriate term to be using to have like a regroup of what all this craziness was I was like this was a you know it's a religious thing like it's I was like, oh, let's go have mass about what happened. Like, you don't, don't do that. And, like, sometimes that, just, like, little tidbits like that. And, I mean, I know it's harder for me. I mean, like, most people don't realize just how blatantly racist they're being towards Native Americans. Like, you see all these girls at Coachella with the headdresses and the feathers and the paint. And you're like, really? (laughs) Like, what are you, you don't know any better? (laughs) Like, 
how can you not see how insulting you're being? Like, it's not a fun Halloween costume. That was, that's a way of life for many people in this country that we just decided to ignore. And it can be exhausting. And at times you just kind of learn how to block it out, which is also something you shouldn't have to do. Uh, but to so the powwow, I mean, we lived in Southern California for a minute, and let me tell you, <laughs> like, I've never felt <laughs> so out of place sometimes, which is, you're like in a sea of white, and you're like, oh, what is this? <laughs> and especially growing up, I grew up in Maryland in a very diverse area, and then to move to somewhere so not diverse was kind of like a, oh, I didn't realize this is what probably a lot of people live through and they just don't, maybe they just don't realize all these other cultures. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm just trying to be nice, but <laughs> um, it, it's kind of a wake up call when you go to some of these areas and you're like, oh, I'm the only person of color. I stand out. I don't like this, especially if if you're not a, you know, outgoing person, and then you get questions like, where are you from? Well, here. No, you're not. Where are you from? Or you say, I'm Native American. You don't look Native American. What does that mean? Is it because I don't have the war paint and the feathers in my hair and braids? Like, I don't understand what point you're trying to make. We all, <laughs> I'm American. I'm a human being. That's all that should matter. But it's, ugh, it can be a lot. And I personally, I've learned how to just kind of zone out and it's probably not a healthy mechanism to have, but here we are. And this has been helping me a lot. This AMZAP is what I call it. It's probably not what Craig likes to call it, <laughs> but <laughs> AMZAP, A-M-Z-A-P, um, has been helping me to be proud of who I am and my heritage and to try to stand up a little bit more for those little moments that you're like, mm, that's not cool. Let's nick that in the butt. Like, let's whoop. Let's not talk about that. Let's not use powwow as a regrouping term anymore. It's not an appropriate thing to do. That's uh, that's that's great. That's really cool to hear that it's it's been helping you out. Uh, one of my best friends is Native American, and I tour with him uh, a lot. Um, and uh, yeah, I I feel like um, like you said, it's this weird thing where like it's easy to kind of pass as white if you want to use that phrase. But then at the same time, I also think that um, there's less, uh, I don't know, the term woke almost has become an insult, but I don't think it should be. And there's there's less wokeness about Native American culture than, than other things. Like when you said the powwow thing, yeah, I don't think I even thought about that. I don't think I use that term because that's just a different kind of nerdy than I am. But I don't know that it would have crossed my mind as like super wrong. But then if I was out there with Jacob and I said, let's let's powwow about this show, he would have let me know very nicely, of course, because we're all learning and I appreciate that. But um, yeah, it's it's been interesting seeing him in that position and even seeing both sides of it because I've also... Um, so the show, show that I tour with is called Million Dollar Quartet, and it, it's about uh, real people, uh, Elvis Presley and Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins and Jerry Lee Lewis, and everyone on stage was a, a rock and roll musician from the 1950s who was white and, you know, whatever. And I've had people come up to me on the other side and be like, you guys are horrible for not casting any minority people. And I'm like, our Elvis is Native American, so... Uh, 
maybe you shouldn't be judging. <laughs> <laughs> and my Elvis before that was Hispanic. I'm actually as into inclusivity as I can be while honoring the uh, the original, you know, who these people were. <laughs> um, yeah, there's always that interesting moment. So I definitely yeah. can. I, I hear you. I definitely hear you. Uh, Jen, do you have any anything to add? Uh, well, I mean, when the photo is released, that's when I'm like, oh, <laughs> I stand out. <laughs> like, wow, <laughs> I didn't realize. <laughs> um, I think uh, one thing that Carly mentioned, actually, was that uh, if I were to be given a dollar for every time I heard the phrase or the question, um, where are you from? I think I'd be a millionaire. And yeah. <laughs> a huge part of that, I think, is like, well, I do look different, but then there's the accent. And so even more so, there's this level of like, oh, let me, let me try and see where you're from. But I think I, I, I can't help but think also that it's not just the curiosity, but it's because you associate the accent with a white person, traditionally a white person, uh, whether Australian or British, I've got South African and what have you. And, and I feel like if I were white, I wouldn't be asked the same question constantly. And so it's this, uh, but I'm not saying that in itself, in it of itself is racist, but it is, it does make me feel like, Again, this um, uh, exoticized to some degree and different is basically how I feel a lot all the time. And, 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 and it's not a conscious thing. Again, more often than not, I walk in a room, I feel like I'm just like everybody else until the picture comes out from the night. And then you're like, oh, <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, but uh it, it it is it is nice to not have to feel that that again that innate um uh i am different and and then to be to have to be curious about how people perceive you uh, it, it's just it's not a good um it's not a good use of my of my time nor my 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 emotions and uh, my brain power, but it comes up a lot. So I think that's uh, that's something that all of us have had to experience one way or another. Thank you both for sharing that with with me and my audience. I know that you know to you guys it's just your life, but um, I think it's important that people hear that and realize that. And, and I wish that we could all understand that we're all individuals and we're all different and we all have our struggles as cheesy as all of those memes are that show like the iceberg with the, the stuff that you see of the person and then what they're dealing with is all under the water. I think it's uh, cheesy, but apropos and accurate. And um, you know, it's always good to get those stories out there. So, so thank you for, uh, for sharing your stories. Um, let's take it back to AMZAP. And I'm so glad you called it that, Carly, because <laughs> I have been wanting to this whole time. And I'm like, I don't want to get in trouble. But you said it. So <laughs> I did. 
I could get in trouble now. Zap <laughs> is such a good name. But, um, you know, the one thing that I hear constantly from from zoo people and non-zoo people that just listen to the podcast is that uh, there are too many acronyms. So you need one that stands out. And AMZAP, meh. But AMZAP? Come on. AMZAP. <laughs> 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 it is. Um, so I wanted to um, I wanted to ask you guys. So you have a bunch of support organizations, and I'm I'm really I was looking at this list, and it makes my heart so happy because so many of my favorite zoos are are on this list, and so many zoos that have welcomed my podcast have also uh, embraced this organization, and it just. It just makes me happy. Um, and I saw that uh, Zoo America recently joined on, and that's the zoo that I grew up near. And so I'm just, I just love all of this. But I am curious, like, what does a supporting zoo and aquarium do for the organization? What does that mean? Um. <laughs> <laughs> Did I stump you guys? <laughs> you want to go, Jen? <laughs> so, uh, and again, we're also... Um, figuring out what we're different levels of membership, whether it's a support organization, an affiliated organization, partnering organization, and what that would look like. For now, a supporting organization is just basically either they um they have um uh members or at least AMZAP members within their organization or their institution that is a member of AMZAP. Or they're just saying that, you know, we, we support you. Um, anything that we can do, you can call upon us. And this is the, these are the contacts for that particular institution. In, in the beginning, it was one of these things where we actually felt that we would receive, we would receive more opposition or some level of like, uh, we don't feel comfortable with that idea because it might alienate like a certain section of society. Like, you know, we, we, we like the idea of diversity, but we don't really want to have to like, you know, put that out there, um, uh, or formalize it in, in that way that we have done as AMZAP. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, supporting organizations are just saying that, uh, we support you and you can call upon us for, um, any, any support that we could provide, whether it's for a networking opportunity, for mentorship opportunity, um, uh, and anything of that, uh, nature. Cool. How do we get more zoos to become support organizations? Because I am looking at this list and it is a great list, but it's only, I don't know, a dozen, 20, something like that. And there are a lot of really good zoos out there that that need to be supporting this organization. Uh, through word of mouth, happily, uh, would be it's it's something that's gaining traction. Uh, also, the AZA is a good uh, resource because if you know, once we have AZA support, then perhaps other AZA institutions will follow. Um, and the other institution, uh, the other, uh, uh, network of zoos, which is ZAA as well. Uh, and maybe even the European AZA at some point, and it will be an international, uh, uh, or at least it would transcend borders of, of the United States. Uh, maybe we'll have something from Canada. Uh, but, uh, for now, it's, um, 
uh, it's either through outreach or somebody knows somebody or is uh, spreading the word from other institutions and other mem- as other members join. We're hoping that uh, we can get an audience with these institutions and be able to just uh, introduce ourselves and what we're trying to do, what we're trying to achieve, um, and then have them be uh, a support organization. So it's still, we have a long way to go. We've literally just started within this year actually um as as um as terrible as covid had been um it it also allowed us to be able to be more flexible with our time be able to conduct a lot of the uh outreach and um calls through conferencing um so now that we have a lot of these virtual platforms then we can certainly utilize that for our benefit and hopefully that um, our, our our membership has exponentially grown um so we're hoping that that will be the same for our support organizations very cool and um all right, y'all, listen up. This is important. Uh, I know that I have a lot of zookeepers that listen to this podcast, and I know that a lot of you are at zoos that are not on this list. I keep flipping through it, hoping new ones will appear just while I'm talking, but that's not its not really how the internet works. Um, but so if you are a, a person, a zookeeper, a, a vet, a, a staff member at a zoo, uh, you need to teach uh, the people at your zoo about AMZAP. Go and and spread the word. This is an incredible organization. It's not going to cost you anything or, you know, and you do not have to be a member of a minority group to spread the word. Allyship is a beautiful thing, y'all. Please, seriously, go talk to your leadership team. Talk to to the people that are, you know, I know every zoo has different positions and different titles. Uh, but, you know, this is also a great opportunity to... Um, get some publicity for the zoo. I'm I'm not going to lie. You can talk to your PR teams about this because supporting organizations like this is, is a good idea right now. We are we are in a time, you know, I know that's how people think sometimes and that's not the reason to do it, but it is an added bonus. So please, please, please go and and talk to your leadership team about AMZAP. I just love saying AMZAP. Uh, <laughs> uh, is there anything that either of you would like to share about your organization that uh, we haven't touched on yet? I mean, we've hit the ground running. People have been very happy and excited for this. And so that's really led to a, a lot of people coming in all at once. Um, and so we're just still kind of trying to smooth out all these wrinkles. And once we really get going, I'm sure we'll have even more to share. So we have a Facebook and an Instagram. Uh, Katie does all of our social media stuff and she's been phenomenal. So follow us on Facebook, Instagram, whatever you want. Keep updated with all the stuff that we're doing and our new support organizations and new members. Um, and hopefully we'll get started with some of these great ideas that we have real soon. Yeah, you will. And it is going to be awesome. Okay. I have a question for you about, I don't even know what to call it, how racism can affect conservation, I guess. So I go to a lot of zoos and I am on the other side of the exhibit from from most people that I talk to on here. And so I hear a lot of people talking. And in the last year, 
actually in the last uh, five years. Um, I don't know what suddenly changed in our country, you know, roughly five years ago that uh, led to this. <laughs> but um, in the last five years, and especially in the last year, I have heard so many times at zoos, people say things like we're at a red panda exhibit and they'll start reading the signage and go, ew, they're from China. We don't like China and walk away. Or like in the primate house, be like, you know, insert racist comment here about gorillas and black people being similar or whatever. Um, and I've heard this and it drives me freaking crazy. But then on top of that, I also wonder, do you guys think that human racism doesn't just affect humans, but also affects animals from those parts of the world? Um and, you know, if you have any thoughts or insight on that, I, I, I'm still forming my own, but I'd, I'd love to hear what you guys think. I think politics definitely um, has a lot to do with where money is driven for conservation purposes. Uh, it was a very interesting note, and, and I don't know the full story on it, but when the World Wildlife Foundation was trying to, um, to, uh, to figure out which animal would be their poster animal, um, you know, there's this bat <laughs> that is very, that's critically endangered, but like, who's going to give money to like a bat that is, you know, most people don't perceive as cute and fluffy and wouldn't reach their, the same, uh, charm as like a panda would, right? Um, and in, in the same way, I think people, when they look at, uh, which country some of the animals are from or how they perceive certain animals having certain, uh, whether it's physical appearance or certain traits that they can associate with a group of people, um, then of course it impacts how they will then uh, support any conservation effort for such animals, particularly on the uh, charitable side of things. Of course, we all have our favorite um, uh, charity that we donate to and uh, favorite activities that we like to support. I myself, I, I am, am very keen on environmental activities, but also I do I, human rights. Um, and so certain um, resources could be funneled into, uh, um, into conservation work that I feel like it's it's not getting the attention because of these thinking about, oh, well, if I donate money to this, it's just going to go to that country. But it doesn't work that way. And I think it's messaging that's very, very important when it comes to um, uh, to conservation. And at the zoo, we really try to make sure that we're not favoring one animal over another when it comes to our conservation efforts. Uh, we do it by uh, just being able to uh, produce a message that is all about the species and all about what's happening in that species habitat and what we can do to be able to further um, uh, them thriving in both captivity and in the wild. And so we try not to, to, I mean, we all know pandas are special. We all know that, <laughs> but we don't have to say it because our, our, uh, probably our, our, our reptile keepers are not really happy with that. <laughs> but you know what? My favorite animal is the Eldarva tortoise. I'm a reptile fan. So, but I can't deny that, uh, that there are certain 
biases when it comes to uh, which animals will get the support that they need and and whatnot. So that 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 stays, I think, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, people like to project their own feelings and thoughts about certain political parties and groups onto these animals that live just happen to live in the same country as these people. But at the same time, I feel like, you know, like if you really like tigers and you're donating money to help tigers in Indonesia or Cambodia, that whole area, it's kind of sneaky because when you help and donate money for tigers, you're also helping the environment of orangutans and gibbons and all these other creatures that live in the same environment. So they do get the help, if, even if they're not like the star child of that area. I mean, nobody <laughs> nobody cares about gibbons. I love gibbons. <laughs> they're the best. <laughs> um but, you know, orangutans and tigers and all the bigger orange animals, for some reason, get all the love. Um, it's kind of, you know, like elephants and rhinos, giraffes. But there are plenty of other animals that live in the savanna. You just never hear about them. But they are certainly benefiting from the conservation done to help protect them, even if it's, like, behind the scenes. So they do get the help, but they certainly could be better represented in some of these things. But I understand the the cuddliness of a tiger versus the Siming with his long gangly arms and, you know, songs. But I mean, we all got to stand up for somebody. <laughs> yeah. I, I do a lot of thinking and talking about wondering why it is that we're drawn to certain animals more than others. And it's true for all of us. And sometimes it's individuals and sometimes it's whole species and, yeah, I can't tell you why when I'm at the National Zoo, I'm looking in that red panda exhibit while the entire crowd is facing the opposite direction trying to see the panda bears. And I mean, don't get me wrong, the panda bears are cool, but like, yeah, I'd rather, I'm literally, I'm literally facing away from the crowd and it's, it's very symbolic the way it's set up there. I like, will like fight through people to get further away from the bears so I can see the red pandas and it's just like, all right, all right, this is... Yeah, going against the grain in a literal sense. So <laughs> it is very fascinating. I just hope that whatever politicization we do of stuff, you know, as a species, we can stop applying it to animals because it's it's really frustrating to hear stuff like that. I mean, it's frustrating to hear someone say that we don't like Chinese people either, but but yeah, uh, it yeah, when I started hearing that about animals, it just blew my mind. It never occurred to me that you could apply racist biases to the country of origin of animals. Uh, I'm sorry. That's just something that's been on my mind for a while. And I was like, well, this seems like a good place to drop it in. Um, so let's, let's, let's end with something a little bit more fun. Uh, it, it's time. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. <laughs> I'll just get this out of the way. <laughs> well, uh, so I, I don't do direct animal care, but as far as on the research side goes, um, uh, researchers do collect a lot of uh, fecal samples um, and they send out to for diagnostic purposes for any number of research projects that they have. Now, um, 
while you need an IACUC, which is basically an animal care use committee that determines whether a project is scientifically viable, um, you know, you, you look at the methodology, methodologies and what it's for, or how is it being used in order to ascertain whether uh, a project will be approved um, to collect samples from animals. So, of course, when you're drawing blood, when you're taking hair samples, that's, that's all relevant. Now, poop, you can just pick that up. And, you know, picking it up opportunistically, but at the same time, it's subject to the same level of permission, approval, and sometimes permitting. Although here's the thing, Fish and Wildlife Services does not regulate poop coming into the country, just so you know. But <laughs> if it's <laughs> from an endangered species, they will still care. Uh, because like, how, so the question is like, how did you actually procure the poop and it's like this technical so if you're just collecting it from the ground that's okay you still need to label it you still need to have the approval blah 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 but then it would require a rigorous scientific review if you're actually putting your finger into the you know the, the poop generator <laughs> organ <laughs> to say this is this a pg-13 you're um, good it's r over here if it needs to be <laughs> okay okay from from <laughs> from the anus and then you're actually pulling it out because you want to collect from there then yes that will require a rigorous scientific review um in order to determine that it's you know a sound method. It's like, well, what if the poop is actually already halfway out? Like, and you're just pulling on the poop. Is that still? So it's just this different levels of technicality that you then have to figure out. But apparently it is a subject of a meeting. So I just find that like, wow, so much to do <laughs> for poop. But so it goes. <laughs> uh, much ado about poop. I think that was the Shakespeare play that never got finished. <laughs> uh huh. I know. I know. I should. Uh, I should try and complete. <laughs> Carly, I know you have something for me. You've been giggling since I mentioned it. Yeah. So <laughs> there's been a couple. Um, like we have Simings, and they have notoriously loose stool. Um, any keeper will tell you that. Their stools are always very soft and gross. And we have a pair, Ronnie and Bradley, and I love them dearly. Um, and for a minute, they had like a really bad bout of like really loose stool. And I remember I went down to Given Ridge one day to clean. And um, <laughs> just by the laws of physics, I don't know how some of the poop got on the, like where... How it ended up so high up on the walls, I don't know. How it wasn't on them, I don't know. Like, it was everywhere. And, like, I had to spend, like, what felt like an eternity. I'm relatively short. And the Given Ridge enclosures are pretty tall. I had to be on, like, an eight-foot ladder with, like, a scrub brush and a hose, like, scrubbing. And I'm like, what happened down here? Why? <laughs> what were you doing? I mean, that one... We have Moki, our three-year-old uh, Western Lowland gorilla, and the gorillas also had like a little bout of loose stool, but, you know, Moki puts everything in his mouth, and he would like poop, like have diarrhea basically in his hand, and then put it right oh. in his mouth, and you're like, oh, and then he tried to get you to play with him, and he's got poop all over his hands, all over his face, all over his feet, and you're like, no, I'm not touching you, and then he would throw... 
like drop it. He likes to pick up hay and like throw it out through the mesh. But then it'd be covered with hay and poop and God knows what else. And you're just like, no. And uh, as a joke, I had told my uh, assistant curator, Becky, that I diagnosed Bonky with poop butt. And (laughs) (laughs) now everybody, whenever they have some type of, you know, gastrointestinal distress is now diagnosed with poop butt per Dr. Hornberger. So (laughs) AMSAP and Dr. Hornberger poop butt diagnosis are my claim to fame. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you both so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it too. Thank you. All right. All right. Well, keep in mind, friends, uh, regardless of what anyone in the organization may tell you, the term AMZAP was officially coined on the Rossafari podcast. Even if you've heard it before that, nope, it was officially coined on this episode. So thank you, Carly, for that and for sharing your uh, incredible stories and passion. And uh, Jen, just thank you so much for your openness and uh, the the willingness to go deep on these issues with me. I appreciate you both so much. So don't forget to check out at AMZAP underscore official on Facebook and Instagram, or go to their website, which is AMZAP.org. And now I am gonna zap on over to the Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.